Well, if you have a copy of the Scriptures today, I want to invite you to turn to the book of 1 John. Seems kind of strange to say that because over the last number of weeks we have been in the book of Genesis, but this morning uh, we're turning to the book of 1 John in the New Testament, the first chapter, and we'll be looking at 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. Let me invite you as you're able. Let's stand in honor of the reading and hearing of God's Word. Again, I'm reading from 1 John chapter 1, beginning in the first verse, uh, wherein the Apostle John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. May God bless today once again the reading and the hearing of His Word. And let's join again in prayer. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, again, we stand before the open Bible and we ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Uh, without the Spirit's help, uh, we will grope about in the, in the darkness and we will not perceive and understand. And so give us light. By thy light, allow us to see light. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, as I noted, uh, we are leaving today our exposition of Genesis. We went through Genesis uh, chapters 1 through 11, and God willing, we will eventually return to Genesis. We'll take up chapters 12 through 36 and look at the, the so-called patriarchs and matriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, uh, but for, for now, we're turning uh, to back to the New Testament. And we're going to the first epistle of John. And this is the first epistle of John the Apostle. And so we're going to, given that we're starting this, we're going to do some teaching a bit, a little bit about this book and the author and the, the, the genre of this writing and some of these sorts of things. Who was the person who wrote the book of 1 John? John was one of the first disciples of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus called upon him when he encountered him to follow him. John had been a fisherman by the Sea of Galilee. And he had been in a sort of a family business. We know that his father was a man named Zebedee. And we know also that he had a brother named James. Who also was not just a, bro a brother by blood. But also a brother in spirit. And he also became a follower of Christ. And in the Gospel of Mark... Uh, there's a brief description of the call of how John and James were called to follow Christ. So if you look at Mark chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, you would read there, And when he, meaning Christ, had gone a little farther thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship mending the nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. And so this tells us of the urgency of the call. Uh, here, uh, when Christ spoke and said, leave everything else behind, come and follow me, that John and James did that. And Christ always does that. He calls us to leave everything else behind and to come and follow Him, to put 
The following of Him as the first priority in one's life. And so they were there with Christ during His three-year public ministry. Uh, they were there when He was arrested in the garden, when He was tried before uh, the chief priests and before Pontius Pilate, when He was crucified. And they were, they were uh, witnesses of Christ's ministry. They were there when the risen Lord um, commissioned the apostles, uh, the eleven without Judas who had betrayed Christ, as it's recorded in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. They had heard uh, Christ say to them, Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. So John had been there and he had heard the risen Christ give this commission. And they had gone out. Uh, John and James and the other disciples, also called apostles from the Greek word apostello, to be sent out. And uh, they had gone out and in fulfillment of Christ's command, uh, so much so that the apostle Paul would later write in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 that the apostles became a kind of foundation with Christ Himself as the chief cornerstone upon which Christ would build His church. And so in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, Paul writes to the Ephesians, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. John's brother, James, was the first of the apostles to die as a martyr. Stephen was the first martyr, but he hadn't been one of the apostles. That's recorded in Acts 7. But in Acts 12, we read of how James, the son of Zebedee, John's brother, the author of this letter's brother, that he was put to death. In Acts 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This probably means that he was beheaded. And so John uh, lost uh, his brother, his beloved brother James, uh, to martyrdom. John, however, according to God's good providence, would go forward. Many sources from the first century outside of the New Testament suggest that John went to a place called Ephesus in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, and there he lived a long and productive life. He preached the gospel. He established churches. He gave counsel to them. And one of the things he did was he wrote, God uh, gifted him and called him to write. So he had a writing ministry. And we see the evidence of that ministry within the New Testament as we have a collection or a corpus, a body of John's inspired writings. Now John probably wrote many things, but in the New Testament we have only the writings that were recognized by believers from the very beginning and continue to be recognized now as writings that not, didn't merely come from the pen of John, but were also inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were God-breathed writings. And so, the Holy Spirit was the co-author with John of these writings. And so, John wrote in what we would call various genres. He wrote the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He was the author of that beloved book that many uh, have looked to uh, as one of their favorites within the New Testament. He also wrote three epistles or letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And we're beginning today to look at 1st John. And he also wrote the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And this was an apocalypse or a prophecy. And we know that, that John wrote that last book, the book of Revelation, 
while he was in exile on an island in the Mediterranean that was called the island of Patmos. If you look at the book of Revelation, the first chapter, the ninth verse, you'll read there, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He had been preaching Christ and he had been arrested. He had been exiled to this little island. The Romans did that in those days. And if you, if you look, continue to read Revelation 1.10, he adds that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day when Christ appeared to him and and uh, compelled him, commanded, commanded him to write what he saw, and that was the book of Revelation. So John, like his brother, also suffered for the Lord. The early Christians were beset by problems on two sides. We might say that they were fighting a war on two fronts, a spiritual war, not a not a carnal war, but a spiritual war on two fronts. On the first front, there was the struggle that was external. They were struggling against people in the world who were not believers and who didn't understand what this, this movement, what these followers of Christ were up to. And so they had external conflict. Sometimes it was, it was with Jews. Most of the early followers of Christ were Jews, as was Christ according to the flesh. And there were many Jewish Christians. And because of their faith in Christ, they were sometimes cast out of the synagogues. They were beaten. Uh, they were disinherited and disowned by their families. And so they had external struggles in that way. There were also external struggles with the Roman authorities who saw the Christians as a threat to the civil order. That's the way they saw Christ. They said, Christ, He's making Himself the King of the Jews. And they misunderstood completely what uh, Christians meant when they called Jesus their King or their Lord. They, they wrongly thought that, that Christ was trying to build a secular kingdom, a political kingdom. They didn't understand He was building a spiritual kingdom, a secret kingdom, heart by heart, person by person. But they saw Christianity as a threat, and so there were external threats. This is why John gets exiled to Patmos. This is why James gets put to death by the sword, or Stephen is stoned to death. Secondly, though, there was another front. And this front was perhaps even more difficult and more destructive than the external front. And this was the internal front. Internal conflicts within the body of Christ. And this involved false teachers, false doctrines, warped understandings of Christianity. And this was happening within local fellowships, within the body of Christ. I remember, I've mentioned this I think before, my friend who's a pastor in Malaysia, Po Bun Singh. And he spent in the late 1980s, uh, uh, nearly a year imprisoned in Malaysia under the charge of evangelizing the Malays. It's illegal to evangelize Muslims in that country. And, um, so he spent about a year in prison under that charge. And I remember though, he said, he said, you know, that was a difficult time in my life. He said, but you know what? I've been hurt much more deeply by conflicts within the church than by any kind of persecution that I've met with from people outside the church. It was the internal struggles that were more grievous to him in the end than, than even being spending a year, nearly a year imprisoned for the gospel. And again, these internal struggles sometimes were, were the hardest. One of the greatest struggles that authentic believers in true churches were having to face in the early days of Christianity were conflicts over 
what the theologians call Christology, which is the doctrine of Christ. And there were some, believe it or not, who denied that the Lord Jesus had been a true man. The funny thing is today, many people, sometimes we think the main problem is there are people who deny the deity of Christ, the true deity of Christ, that that the Lord Jesus Christ is God, God in the flesh. But in the early days of Christianity, one of the chief problems was that there were those who claimed to be Christians, but who at the same time denied what we would call the true humanity of the Lord Jesus. The nub of the issue for some of them was they felt like there was a conflict. How can you say that Jesus of Nazareth is true God and also say that he was a true man? How can you say that God was conceived in the virgin's womb? That as a man he slept, he hungered, he thirsted, he wept, he perspired as he did in the garden when he... he, was perspiring so much that his sweat was like great drops of blood, Luke says. And most of all, how can you say that Jesus of Nazareth is God when he suffered and died on the cross? Their explanation was that Jesus had not been a true man, but that he had only appeared to be a man. The Greek verb for to appear or to seem to be is the verb dokeo. We would transliterate it D-O-K-E-O. And later theologians would call those who denied our Lord's true humanity docetus from this word. Those who said Christ only seemed to be a man. And the whole system was called docetism. The idea that Christ hadn't been a true man. 1 John, this letter, 1 John, is written from the Apostle John. And I think as we go through this letter, we'll see that I think this letter was composed in part in order to help a group of Christians, probably in a local church, who had been stirred up by a group of false teachers who had infiltrated this fellowship, and they were denying Christ's true humanity. And the tension had become so great that there had been basically a split, a schism within this church. Sometimes we, we're, we're greed, we hear about schisms within churches, and that's a grievous thing, but in some sense, it's nothing. there's nothing new under the sun. That's what Solomon said. And there were things like this, sadly, that happened in the early church. We never claim perfection for the church in this age. There's an age to come in which the church will be perfect. But for now, we see there can be problems that arise. And, you know, it's right to take a stand for right doctrine. There's some things you should have caused dissension about. All things should be done peacefully, with love, with charity. But there's some places where you have to take a stand for what is right and true. And, and this was happening in this church as there were those who were denying the, the uh, humanity of Christ. We get some clues. Look at a couple of clues. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. I think John was speaking about these false teachers. And he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. The tension of some had become so great that some had departed. And another huge clue as to what is happening and why John is writing this letter is in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Look at this, 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3. As John writes, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try or test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. When he says, try or test the spirits, he's basically saying, be discerning. Use the Holy Spirit's guidance as you read the scriptures and you listen to teaching. Be discerning. Because there are, there are pseudo-prophetai, there are false prophets who have gone out into the world. And then look at 1 John 4, 2. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. How do you know what right teaching is? When the teachers say that Jesus came in the flesh as a true man, they're right. They're correct. Contrarywise, look at verse 3. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. Do you know the word Antichrist doesn't appear in the book of Revelation? It's used here primarily to talk about those in John's time who were opposing Christ, over against Christ, Antichrist. And he says, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. So this shows us what was going on in this church, what was happening in this church, and why John has written this letter. He's writing it to address a crisis in the church, this church and other churches that are being rocked by docetism. And what is he going to do? We see it from the very first verses as we're going to look at them and just begin to unpack them now. We see in the very first verses, what he's going to do is he's going to give them a testimony that he, as an apostle, has the unique authority to do. He's going to say, I am an eyewitness of the life of Christ. He'll call the Lord Jesus the word of life. And he will say that the Lord Jesus Christ was a true man. He did not just appear to be a man. He was not a ghost. He was not a specter. He was not a spirit. He was not a virtual Christ. He was not a hologram. But he was a true flesh and blood man. And because he was a true man, he could be a true savior. And because he wasn't as a true man, he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. So let's turn now, and you test me and see if you don't think this is what John is up to in these opening couple of verses. So let's turn to our text and look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Now, before we un unpack that, I want you to think about this. We call this, we typically call this the first epistle of John. In my copy of the Bible, I'm looking at it right here in front of me, my Cambridge turquoise edition of the King James Version. I love this preaching Bible. The title is the first epistle general of John. It's kind of weird. It's got the adjective behind the, 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 the first epistle general. Epistle, letter. And we call uh, the collection of writings from James to the book, from the book of James to the book of Jude, the general epistles or the Catholic epistles. And we Protestants always have to make a little footnote and say, not capital C Catholic, not Roman Catholic, but Catholic, the, the adjective Catholic means universal. The, these general epistles. But if you know your Bible, you know that letters normally begin with an identification of the sender and the recipient and some type of greeting. So we're here at 1 John. If you just turn back probably three pages in your Bible... And you look at 2 Peter, for example. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. How does it begin? Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Sender, Peter. To believers, grace to you. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's the way letters start. Turn back to 1 John. Let's just go the other way for a second. And look at the little letters of 2 and 3 John. Look at 2 John, verse 1. The elder, 
John calling himself an elder. Unto the elect lady and her children. Look at 3 John. The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. That's the way letters start. But now go back to 1 John. Does John begin, John, the apostle, to this church that has been troubled, grace to you. Or the elder to this church that has been troubled, grace to you. No, it doesn't start like that. It, and so for this reason, many people believe that 1 John is actually not an epistle. Aside from what it, the way it might be titled in modern editions of the Bible. Instead, it's been suggested that this book was a sermon. Maybe even a doctrinal track or treatise that John had written down to address this problem in this church. And so that's why it doesn't start off like a letter. It starts off immediately with teaching. It starts off with content, doctrinal content, practical content. And so let's look at it. Look at verse 1. How does it begin? That which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. From the beginning in Greek, up. Our case. From the beginning. Now I said we weren't in Genesis any longer. But this actually sounds a little bit like Genesis. How does Genesis begin? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And even more so it sounds like the way the gospel of John begins. John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John likes talking about the beginnings. And so, in a sense, he's going to start off here. That which was from the beginning. Who is he talking about? Well, he's going to talk about Christ. And when he says that Christ was from the beginning, he wants to start off by saying, listen... I affirm the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was there in the beginning with God and was God. He existed in pre-existence. He was, He is, and He will always be. There never was a time when the second person of the Godhead was not. But then, He moves from that. To say, but let's not overlook the true humanity of Christ. And he turns and he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. He covers here three of the five senses. We heard him with our ears. We saw Him with our eyes. We looked upon Him. And we handled Him. Why does He repeat the, the seeing Christ twice? We saw Him with our eyes. We looked upon Him as well. Perhaps the sense here is to emphasize the fact that in seeing Christ, He was not... He, the apostles didn't have some momentary fleeting glance of Christ as he passed by at a distance. But he's saying, as an apostle, I had been up close and personal with Christ. I had looked upon him with the other apostles as he taught. I had observed him as he performed miracles. I had sat at the table with him as he ate and drank, I was there in the ship during the storm on the Sea of Galilee and saw him sleeping. And he, in addition to hearing and seeing, he says, I've handled him. If I could double back for just a second, I think it's noteworthy that John begins by stressing the fact that he heard Jesus, which we have heard. If I wanted to prove to you that I knew someone, 
I might begin with sight. I might begin with, with stressing the fact that, that I am an eyewitness. I have seen him. Let's say I, you know, I run into somebody this afternoon and I say, uh, you know, uh, Jeff Clark is an elder at my church. And they say, Jeff Clark, I don't believe he exists. I say, wait a second, I, I saw him today. Jeff Clark is, I saw him. But it's interesting that, that John begins with recalling that he had heard Jesus. That he had been an ear witness of Jesus. And I think John begins with that here in verse 1. Because it is a testimony to the power of Christ's words. It is Christ's words that had changed his disciples. His words had sunk down into their ears. And in fact, Luke records that Christ used that, that very metaphor once when he spoke to them. In Luke 9, verse 44, Christ had said, Let these sayings sink down into your ears. In John 6, we read of a time when many disciples turned back and no longer followed Christ. And the Lord asked the disciples in John 6, verse 67, Will ye also go away? Are you also going to desert me? And it was Peter who answered in John 6, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. These men have had their lives transformed. By their hearing of Christ. Isn't it interesting when you go through the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. You will not find a single physical description of Christ. Not a single disciple said. Jesus was this tall. He weighed this much. He had this color hair. This color eyes. This color skin. Etc. There's no physical descriptions. What do they describe? What made the lasting impression upon them? His words, what he said, that's what transformed their lives. John, in his gospel, records in John chapter 10, Christ's teaching when he declared himself to be the good shepherd. John 10, 11. And just after that, in John 10, 27, Christ said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They hear my voice. The Apostle Paul will later write in Romans 10, 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so it's no accident, I think, that John begins, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Don't tell me he wasn't a real man. I heard him with my own ears. His teaching, his voice made a lasting impression upon John and upon every single one of the apostles. And I also think that John begins there because as we're going to continue to tease this out a bit, this is the way we continue to connect with Christ. It's through his words. It's His words when we read the Scriptures, when we hear preaching and teaching. It's His words that, that, that get inside of us and transform us and change us. His living words. That's not to downplay though the fact that John can give a unique witness that he saw Christ also. And so he moves on and he says of Christ, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. And so John here is saying that the Lord was not some translucent, transparent spiritual presence, but a real flesh and blood man. Again, in his gospel, the gospel of John, John records another John, John the Baptist, who saw Jesus. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus, it elicited from him this prophecy recorded in John 1.36. As John records it. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, 
He, John the Baptist, saith, Behold the Lamb of God. It's a little testimony. John the Baptist saw John walking, not hovering six inches above the ground, but walking. And John prophesied that Christ would die as the Paschal Lamb, and by His shed blood there would be forgiveness of sins. Mere spirits don't shed blood. Spirits don't walk. John himself, the Apostle John now, not John the Baptist, had been there in the upper room. We're told in John 13 verse 23 that that John the Apostle had sat next to Christ at the meal. He had been there at His bosom, right beside Christ. And so he he had seen Him, observed Him. John also records in John chapter 19 how the Apostle John, referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved because he was indeed Christ's dearest friend, humanly speaking, during his earthly ministry, that he had been there with the mother of Christ standing by the cross of Christ. Look at John 19 verses 25 through 27. So John had been not only an ear witness, but he had been an eyewitness of Christ's ministry. He had been an eyewitness of his sufferings. He's the only apostle that it's pointed out was there at the foot of the cross looking as Christ was suffering, standing by Christ's own mother there at the foot of the cross. And he had also been an eyewitness of Christ in his glory after he had been raised from the dead. Even before the resurrection... John had been there along with Peter and James on what is called the Mount of Transfiguration. And there, Christ had revealed some of His glory. Peter writes about this in 2 Peter 1, verse 16. And he says, We were eyewitnesses on the Mount of Transfiguration of His majesty. And then after Christ was raised from the dead, John was a witness of the resurrection. He was a witness of the empty tomb. In John chapter 20, we read about how John raced with Peter to the empty tomb when they heard that it was empty as the women reported it to them. And in John 20 verse 8, it says of John, And he saw and believed. And that same evening, in John chapter 20, it says that the disciples gathered in the upper room for fear of the Jews. And then John reports in John 20 verse 20, Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. He saw the risen Lord. The last thing that John mentions, we, we heard Him with our ears, we saw Him with our eyes, we looked upon Him, and He says finally there in verse 1, and our hands have handled. John the Apostle had touched the Lord. And when he had touched the Lord, his hands did not pass through him as if he were a ghost. Christ was a tangible presence with a real solid body. As Paul will write in Ephesians 5.30, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. This was true of John's experience of our Lord, not only before the resurrection, but also afterwards. As John was no doubt there in the upper room after Christ had been raised from the dead. And a week later, he appeared to them again while Thomas was there. Remember, Thomas had missed the first time when Christ had appeared on that first Lord's Day evening. And Thomas said, unless I can see him, unless I can place my hands in his wounds, I will not believe. And then again the next week, the risen Christ appeared to them and John was there and It's recorded for us in John 20, verse 27. Then saith he, Christ, to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And we read Thomas's great confession. He's not doubting Thomas, but believing Thomas. In John 20, verse 28, he answered, My Lord and my God. John says, we handled him. We touched him. So what is John saying overall here? 
to those who would deny that the Lord Jesus came in the flesh, that He was and is a true man, John is saying, listen, I'm an apostle. I heard Him with my ears. I saw Him with my eyes. I touched Him with my hands. To deny His true humanity is an absurdity of absurdities. And then he caps all this dramatic beginning off by referring to Christ as the Word of Life. I heard, I saw, I touched of the Word of Life. The term word here in Greek is logos. And this is one of John's favorite terms for our Lord. We could go back again to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word, Logos, was with God. And the Word, Logos, was God. Christ is the Word. The eternal second person of the Godhead. The second person of God who is the root of Logos. Who is logic, order, reason. Uh, This is the wisdom of God made flesh in Christ. And he couples that word, one of his favorite words for Christ, calling him the word, he couples it also with the word life. He's the word of life. In John 14, 6, the Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He does not say, I am a life. I am one life among many. But he says, I am the life. He does not say, I was the life. I used to be the life. But he says, I am the life. Present tense. Christianity is therefore not a historical society. We don't get together just so we can talk about how great things it used to be when Christ at one time was on the earth. It's about the fact that He is living right now. Right now. He's alive. He's present by the Spirit. And John is saying, that man, I heard him. I saw him. I handled or touched him. And He is the pre-existent Word made flesh. And He is the life and the only way to know the Father. That term life is striking because what's the opposite of it? Death. And this is the teaching of believers to, to be outside of Christ, although you may be physically alive. You're spiritually dead. You just don't know it. Paul will, will, will write to the Ephesian believers and say, we were dead in our trespasses and sins but we were made alive in Christ. So Christ is the word of life. He proceeds in the last couple of verses here that are part of our text to articulate, I think, at least three more things. And we'll look at each verse. One thing in verse 2, one thing in verse 3, one thing in verse 4. So he's going to say three more things. First of all, in verse 2, he declares that the way in which men Now, in this age, after Christ's resurrection, after His ascension into heaven, He's seated now at the right hand of the Father. The way that we know and experience Christ now is through the testimony of the apostles. And so look at verse 2. John writes, For the life was manifested, and we, meaning the apostles, have seen it and bear witness and show unto you who are not apostles and who were not able to be eyewitnesses and ear witnesses of Christ during His incarnational ministry. We show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, the apostles. John is stressing here the special role of the apostles, men like himself, who were ear witnesses and eyewitnesses and who handled Christ. 
Christ will tell these disciples just before He ascends to the Father in Acts 1.9, And ye shall be witnesses unto Me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And this means, friends, contrary to some popular expressions of evangelical Christianity, charismatic Christianity, that we do not now in this age aspire to see Christ with our eyes. He has ascended and is in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We know Him now in this age by the Spirit until the time when He will come again in power and glory. I remember when I was in seminary, there was a fellow I knew, interesting story on this guy. He had once been a local television newscaster in a large market in a town in the south. And he left all that to go into seminary and to go into the ministry. And uh, his testimony was that Christ had appeared to him one night in a hotel room. Pretty amazing story. I don't know what happened to him, but with all due respect, I find that hard to reconcile with John's words. John says it was the role of the apostles to see the Lord, to hear the Lord, and then to bear witness to Him and show Him unto us. And how did they show Him unto us? They For a season while they were alive, they were preaching about Him, but how did, how did that witness continue to be borne out to us? Through what they wrote. Even this letter we're looking at right now is a means by which John the Apostle is showing unto us Christ. We have to be careful. We can think, oh, well, I want Jesus to appear to me in a hotel room. We have to be careful of that because our experiences can be deceiving. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.9 that Satan can be transformed into an angel of light. How do you know Satan isn't appearing to you? Our experiences cannot be the standard of such things. Our standard is the Word of God. Our standard is the witness of the apostles. And this is what John is laying out for us. Some of you are familiar with John chapter 17. It's sometimes called Christ's high priestly prayer. It's a threefold prayer. Christ is about to go to the cross. He prays first of all for Himself. John 17, 1, glorify thy Son. He prays then for the original disciples, the apostles, in John 17, 9. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. And then lastly, in John 17, verse 20, Christ prays for us. For all those who will become believers by the witness of the apostles. John 17, verse 20, Christ says, Neither pray I for these alone, the original disciples, the apostles, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it describes the church in Jerusalem. It says they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, to the apostles' teaching. And if we turn over to the last of the general epistles, Jude, it only has one chapter, verse 17. Jude writes, But beloved, Remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second of three closing points. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, John stresses that the end or goal of those who heed the witness of the apostles, who live in this in-between age between Christ's first advent and His second, the goal of these apostles bearing witness and showing us Christ is that we might even now in this age have fellowship or koinonia with the apostles, which is in turn fellowship with God the Father and with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. That which we, apostles, have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship, koinonia, with us, the apostles. 
And truly, our fellowship, koinonia, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Notice again, the stress is on the foundational experience of the apostles, those who had seen and heard Christ directly. We have fellowship with the apostles when we heed what they have conveyed to us about Christ. And thereby we have fellowship with them, and we have fellowship with God the Father, and we have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. His third and final point in verse 4. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Why did John write this letter? Why did he write the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation? Why did the other apostles write the books that they, that they wrote under the guidance and inspiration, superintendence of the Holy Spirit? They did this so that the generations who would come after would have their joy to be made full. We are given the scriptures, we are given the spirit in this age so that we might be believers and we might be filled with joy. We all know that joy is not the same as happiness. The world wants happiness. They want external comfort and success and and, uh, adulation that will bring temporal happiness. Christians want something different. We want to have joy. And what is joy? I don't mean some hokey word art that you find at Christmas time. Joy, joy, joy. Joy to the world. Sorry if you have one of those in your house. It's okay. I know you're Christians and you mean it in a different way. You mean it in the right way. But, but there is something different about it. Joy is deep gladness in God despite what your external circumstances look like. That's what joy is. The Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome and he writes to the church at Philippi in Philippians 4.40, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. I remember a pastor sharing about a visit that he made to a nursing home to visit a godly older woman from his church. But as he went to visit her and he left, he was leaving, he was struck by her contentment, even though she was sick and she was dying and she was suffering. And as he started to leave, he noticed that uh, she had scotch tape, a little scratch of, a scrap of paper uh, to the wall by her bed in which she had written the little acronym that so many Christians learn at some point. F-A-I-T-H. Faith. Forsaking all, I trust Him. Forsaking all, I trust Him. She had joy. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And the Apostle John wrote this and all the other writings in the New Testament, all the writings in the Scriptures are so that believers might have not happiness, but joy, deep gladness in God, whatever our external circumstances might be. Well, friends, we've worked through the passage and we've gotten started on this journey uh, through the book of 1 John. Let me, let me close with a question. I've posed this question before, I think in some of my teachings, some of you maybe have heard this before. We think about it. You know, we're living, we're living again in this in-between age. Christ came. And we're living in a time awaiting His second coming. We're living in this in-between age. Um, and, and, and if we were to, uh, to, to think about how do we know, how do you know about the life of Christ? And maybe I could use this analogy. How many of you, this is a rhetorical question you'll have to answer. How many of you believe there was a man named Abraham Lincoln who was the 16th president of the United States and was the president during a time of a national uh, conflagration 
a war between the states or a civil war? How many of you believe that? I'm guessing most of you do, probably. Now my question is, how do you know that Abraham Lincoln existed? Did you ever meet him? Did you ever see him? Did you hear the Gettysburg Address? Did you ever shake his hand? How do you know that there was such a person? Well, you might say we have, we have the remains of his writings. We've got the little letter in which he wrote the Gettysburg Address. Or we have proclamations he gave. We have records of people who knew him and wrote about him. We've got, we can go to Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. and we can see a, a monument to his existence. Well, might I suggest to you that the main reason you believe there was a person named Abraham Lincoln is you believe the witnesses about his life. And let me suggest to you also that, that the way you know, part of the way you know about Christ is you believe the witnesses and the reports of those who were around him, who heard him, who saw him, and who touched him. We know Christ by means of the testimony of the apostles. But unlike our knowledge of the historicity of Abraham Lincoln, we also have the Holy Spirit. We have the witness of the apostles. And we have the witness of the Holy Spirit who inspired the writings of the apostles. And when we read their record of Christ's words and his deeds, it's as though we are there hearing Christ. That we are seeing Christ. That we are handling him as they are showing him to us. They were eyewitnesses to the word of life. And when we listen to them, we have fellowship with them. And through that, we have fellowship with God the Father and His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why, as Christians, we put so much emphasis on reading the Scriptures. This is why when you come to worship service here, you're like, come on, you people. We're singing the Scriptures. We're praying the Scriptures. We're reading the script. Why do you have to? Why do you have to read such long passages? And a sermon that lasts fifty minutes to an hour? Really? Haven't you learned that in the internet age, people's time span isn't that long? They can't pay attention that long. It's because we believe we need to hear. We need to hear from the apostles, and we need we need to have, have the Spirit moving. So we might come to know Christ through their witnesses of what they're showing to us. And we believe that by so doing, we will have a deep gladness in Christ. Maybe many Christians are discontented because they're so little exposed to Christ as He has shown forth through the apostles. And we come to have a deep gladness in Him. Now, let me just add one more thing. It will not always be so. It will not always be so because there is coming a time when we believe that Christ shall return in glory in His resurrected body. And there will come a time when we will hear Him and see Him like the apostles did. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, For now, in this age, we see through a glass darkly but then face to face. And we'll get to it eventually. Look over quickly at 1 John 3 verse 2 at the very end. When He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. There's coming a, a day when faith will be sight. We long for that day even as we continue to heed the witness of the apostles who were the eyewitnesses to the word of life. Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer.
Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for thy servants across the ages, most especially for those that were given this foundational privilege of being apostles. Those like John, who sat next to our Lord in the upper room, who was one of his dearest friends, and who heard him, saw him, handled him, and then wrote of him so that provision could be made for those of us in this generation that we might know Christ and we might have joy. And so use today, O God, again, this witness of the apostle to strengthen and edify us in the faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.